0: Ever laid under a tall, tall oak tree and just gazed upwards into the branches? You see all of the sticks and branches and limbs overlapping each other. It's tough to tell which limbs are on top and which are on the bottom. Distance between the branches is impossible to judge. It's just a maze while lying on your back looking upwards. And this is how it is with prophecy in general and with Isaiah in particular. Some of what Isaiah said was local and current. It occurred during the rise of the Assyrian Empire. Other aspects of his vision wouldn't be fulfilled for several hundred years when God sent the Babylonians to judge the southern Hebrew kingdom of Judah. Still a vast portion of Isaiah's prophecy has yet to be fulfilled. Isaiah saw events that won't occur until a time yet future. When Jesus returns to earth and establishes his kingdom. And it's these overlapping applications that make the book of Isaiah so tough for us to interpret. In fact, I'm sure Isaiah himself didn't fully understand all that he saw. Isaiah's first prophecy has this overlapping feature. Chapters 2 through 5 is a single prophecy. Chapter 2 verse 2 states that it's for the latter days. But it also spoke to the current situation. Assyrian troops were parked in the suburbs north of Jerusalem. It was time to sound the alarm. And this is the book of Isaiah. He sees locally and globally. He speaks to current and future dilemmas. And sometimes he does both in the very same passage. Reading Isaiah is like looking into the limbs of a tree. Well, chapter 4, verse 1 predicts a man shortage. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man. In wartime, men die in battle, and young women are left without available men to marry. There's a shortage of men, Isaiah says. Did you know this is also what's happened today on America's college campuses? In most non-engineering schools, women are far, they far outnumber the men. This year's undergrad enrollment at UGA is 57% female. At the College of Charleston, the undergrad population is 62% women. Jake, you ought to think about going to the College of Charleston. And this, too, is due to a war. Not a literal war, but a battle of the sexes. You see, our culture's insistence on gender equality has produced a bias against boys, particularly in our schools. It's created an educational system that now favors girls and the way girls learn. Schools today are a girl's world. It's easier for girls to succeed. And this change has backfired on women. For in winning the battle of the sexes, there's now a smaller pool of educated marriage partners. Here's the irony. When men are deprived the opportunity to lead, women suffer. Hope you know that. When men are deprived the opportunity to lead, women suffer. Rather than compete, the sexes need to complement one another. Isaiah says that things will be so bad, seven women will grab for one man. That's the closest I could come to seven women grabbing one man. They'll grab one man saying... We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our approach. Check this out. Women are so desperate to get married, they're willing to let a potential husband off the hook. They're saying, hey, you don't have to provide for a family. The wife will agree to birth and raise the babies and then do the housework and work a job and clothe herself and her kids. And guys, this is the social landscape that women's liberation has created in our country. Once upon a time, women were honored by men. Men sacrificed to provide for their wives so that their wife could focus on her family. Women were sheltered in a sense. They were treated as special privileges by their men. Oh, but somewhere around the mid-1970s, American feminism demanded freedom from male authority. Women's liberation fought for equal treatment For both men and women. And yet here's what feminism didn't calculate. Equal is how men treat other men. Oh, you pull your weight. I'll pull my weight. Women now have equal treatment, all right. But it turns out equal isn't what most women really wanted. Women long to be treated special. And they should be. Not equal, dare I say, even ladylike. Biblical masculinity doesn't dominate women. It elevates women. True male leadership treats women to a better quality of life. Well, here in verse 2, we're told, In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Notice here, God makes three promises in the wake of His judgments. First, that the branch shall be glorious. The branch was a Messianic term. Messiah was a branch from David's family tree. God promised King David a dynasty that would produce an everlasting ruler that would sit on an eternal throne. Jesus is that branch. Second, Isaiah promises restoration and prosperity from the ravages of war. That after the judgment, the fruit of the earth shall be excellent. And then third, he promises a remnant or a group of Jews that will escape the judgment and live to begin again. This prophecy came true in Isaiah's day, and it will also give hope to future Jews who endure and who come out of the great tribulation. The future Jews will endure a terrible time. They'll come out of that time, though, to live a thousand years in the shade of a new ruler, the branch. Jesus will return to earth to sit on Israel's throne to restore God's people, and to ensure their prosperity. Now, since Isaiah's prophecy sort of swings back and forth from his day to the last days, I thought it would be helpful to kind of give you a brief outline of the prophetic scenarios that end this current age. Today, God is growing His church. But when He's done, the church will be raptured, will be caught up together with the Lord, And God will again turn His attention, His focus, to Israel. By various means, He'll preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. But as it's done for 2,000 years, Israel will refuse to trust Jesus as their Messiah or Christ. Thus, God allows the nation to be double-crossed by one Antichrist. This world leader will lead a global revolt against God. Which God will topple with a flurry of cataclysmic chaos. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 6 through 8. It all culminates in a war where Jesus returns to put down the revolt and establish God's kingdom on the earth. Finally, finally, Israel will embrace Jesus as their Messiah. And in the new world that emerges, Israel will prosper for a thousand years while King Jesus rules the world in peace and in justice. That's some good news. Verse 3. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. Obviously, this follows a, a great devastation. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. The book of Revelation zeroes in on a final seven-year period of fierce judgment from God. It's called the Great Tribulation, and it has two purposes. On the one hand, the world will be punished. This wicked world we live in needs to be punished. Judgment is due. The world will be punished, but on the other hand, Israel will be purified. The spirit of burning or purging or purifying will occur. It's interesting, This same events, this Great Tribulation, will affect both groups differently. The world will be punished, but Israel will be purified. Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place on Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering. And this is such an amazing promise. The cloud by day and the fire by night will appear again. See, these two phenomena have always symbolized God's presence. In Genesis chapter 15, when God made his strategic covenant with Abraham, he appeared to Abraham how? As a smoking censer and as a burning torch. Smoke and fire. The cloud and the fire. When God led Israel through the wilderness, he sent a cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire by night. When the temple was established, fire fell on the sacrifice while a glory cloud hovered in the holy place. The cloud and the fire. Even in the New Testament on the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire were seen over the heads of the disciples. And the Holy Spirit came as a cloud or as a mighty wind rushing in to fill His followers. Even today, God's Spirit acts in us like a fire and like a cloud. He burns away our sin and He reveals the cloud of God's holiness and and heaviness in our lives. Well, verse 6 tells us, And there will be a tabernacle, some kind of tent, for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge, and for a shelter from storm and rain. Zechariah 14, verse 16, predicts that in the kingdom age, when Jesus reigns, the citizens of the world will come to Jerusalem to worship Him. Apparently, provisions will be made for the crowds, shade from the sun, Shelter from the storm. And why not? For isn't that what Jesus has been to us? Shade from the heat of the world's trials. Shelter from the thunder of this world. It's fitting that he provides the same for all who worship him. Chapter 5 tells us, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Here, Isaiah the prophet becomes a poet. He begins to sing a song. He dug it up and cleared out stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. You know, even today, vineyards dot Jerusalem's hillsides. In the Old Testament, the grapevine was a symbol for the nation. The temple doors were actually carved with different grapevines, golden vines. Why? Well, a vine is a symbol of joy. And this is what Israel was supposed to bring to God, great joy. This is why God plowed and planted and weeded and watered and spent so much time and effort cultivating His people Israel. He wanted to produce good grapes. But instead, Israel yielded only wild grapes. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? The vineyard's failure was not God's fault. He had done all he possibly could. He had tended and cultivated and watered and weeded. The people had sinned and rebelled against God. And we need to ask ourselves, what is coming out of our lives, good grapes or wild grapes? God is doing His part. Are we doing ours? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are His pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. It was because of Judah's sin that God removed his protection around the vineyard. The vineyard became vulnerable to break-ins and takeovers and weeds and drought. In short, there was a limit to God's perseverance. And what was true of Israel of old is also true of Christians today. Read John chapter 15, the parable of the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And yet similar lessons are taught there as here. Jesus says in John 15, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. It's true for us. Push God's patience. And there comes a time when He'll give us over to the decisions that we've made. He'll give up on turning our heart. And He'll give us up to the independent life that we've stubbornly pursued. Resist God to that point, and He'll remove His edge. The rest of chapter 5 consists of six woes that are pronounced on Judah. Verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. Notice first, God condemns Jerusalem's overcrowding. You know, Throughout the Bible, God likes gardens. Have you noticed that? God likes green spaces. In Isaiah's day, apparently the real estate developers were cramming too many houses in side by side. Oh, it increased the profits, but but at the cost of healthy living conditions. Isaiah says, In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield one ephod. In other words, once fertile land will become barren, a 10-acre vineyard will produce a scant nine gallons of grapes. Now here, Isaiah uses several ancient measurements. This is probably not on your calculator, but these were the way the ancients measured things. A bath is equal to about nine gallons. A homer is not something that Justin Upton hits, but a homer was like 11 bushels. So a bath is nine gallons, a homer is 11 bushels, and ephah equals one bushel. Thus, Isaiah is saying it's going to take 11 bushels of seed to yield one bushel of grapes or veggies. This is what uncontrolled development does. It strips the land of its nutrients. Whereas God made the land to be fertile and to produce wonderful crops, it becomes barren because of our overworking it. hope you notice from this verse that God cares about the environment. He does. Here God goes green. He is concerned about what we do to his creation. And when mankind harms the environment, it eventually brings harm to himself. He says, woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night, till wine inflames them. Now here's another woe. Woe to the party crowd. Hey, did you know that beer at breakfast is probably not a good idea? Start drinking first thing in the morning, and there's a problem, man. Here he talks about those that start drinking in the morning, and they drink all through the day. Even in Isaiah's day, the people of Judah couldn't wait to wrap their hands around a big cold one. He says the harps and the strings, the tambourine and flute and wine are in their feasts. But they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of His hands. Now certainly the Bible teaches that drunkenness is a sin. But when I read verse 12, the real offense here seems to be leaving God out of the celebration. He says, they do not regard the work of the Lord. The world parties to forget about God. All our celebrations should focus on remembering Him and giving Him honor. Therefore, my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Remember, those were the ones drinking beer at breakfast. They eventually died of thirst. Therefore, Sheol, which is another name for hell, has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he who is jubilant shall descend into it. Notice they start out with an ice-cold beer in their hand, but they end up hungry, thirsty prisoners, ultimately inhabitants of hell. According to Isaiah, Judah's party train was headed for hard times on earth, but also some hot times in eternity. I hope you don't believe the common notion that hell is going to be one big party. You don't believe that, do you? I hope not. That everyone in hell will be raised in hell. You know, some people have that idea. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna go to hell and just party it out with my buddies. Don't count on it. That's not true. Sure, some folks are gonna party all the way to hell. It says it here, verse 14 He who is jubilant shall descend into it. Some folks are gonna party all the way to hell, but once they get there, they're gonna discover that the refrigerator's empty. There are no cold ones in hell. In Luke chapter 16, the rich man cried out to Abraham from hell. You remember what he said? Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. And sadly, no mercy was given. Hey, don't expect a Coors Light silver bullet express to run through hell. Cooling everybody off. It won't happen. Realize drinking alcohol may be a matter of consciousness. But understand drunkenness is a sin. Do you know the only cells your body doesn't replenish are brain cells? Did you know that? The average person is born with 17 billion brain cells. And each time he or she consumes large amounts of alcohol, it kills off about 10,000 brain cells. Now, there's a lot of reasons I don't drink, but not the least of which is I need all the brain cells I can get. Take heed to Isaiah, and don't party your way to hell. Notice one more point in verse 14. I think it's interesting. Sheol, which was a Hebrew term for hell, is enlarged. It seems hell grows to fill the demand. And to me, this speaks volumes of the love of God. You remember in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said that hell wasn't made for man, but for the devil and for his angels, or his demons. God sized up hell for just a few occupants. He never wanted men to go to hell. Hell wasn't made for man, it was made for the devil and his demons. Folks go to hell because they choose to by rejecting Jesus, but it was never God's intention. He loves us too much. It's interesting to me that hell has to be enlarged to meet the demand. Verse 15, People shall be brought down, each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. People are brought down and God is lifted up or exalted. This is the goal of all God's judgments. This is what's needed today. People, as I see it, are riding on their high horse. People need to be brought down. God needs to be exalted. Ultimately, God's judgments will create just that scenario. J. Vernon McKee, he writes in his commentary, In the thinking of the world, God has been removed from the throne of judgment, divested of authority, robbed of His regal prerogative. He has been towed to the edge of the world and pushed over as excess baggage. He is characterized as a toothless old man with long whiskers, sitting on the edge of a fleecy cloud with a rainbow around his shoulders. He is simple, senile, and sentimental. He does not have enough courage or backbone to swat a fly or crush a grape. His place is in the corner by the fireplace where he can knit. This is the world's concept of God. But this is not the God of the Bible. It's not the God that we read about in Isaiah a God of swift judgment. One day our God will surprise the naive. And yet the second woe ends in blessing. He says, then the lambs shall feed in their pasture and in the waste places of the fat ones, strangers shall eat. When Jesus reigns, there'll be enough leftovers even for the strangers to feast. Here's a third woe. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. In other words, Judah was prideful. They thought they could sin and not be caught. They drew iniquity with cords of vanity. Verse 19 finishes quoting them. That say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. In other words, if God is going to judge us, let us see him do it now. They're baiting God. They're taunting God. They've reveled in their sin and they've mocked God. And isn't this what modern man is doing today? It was Francis Schaeffer who said, what marks our generation, it's the fact that modern man looks to the universe and thinks nobody is home. Isn't that how people live today? They think nobody's home. That they're all alone. That there's no one to whom they're accountable. People who think that are in for a huge shock one day. Verse 20 is a woe for modern times. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Men will rewrite the moral code. And isn't this what's happened today? Tolerance for homosexuality is now the virtue. Any opposition is now bigotry. Pornography is now freedom of expression. Modesty is repression. Abortion is the right to choose. Pro-life is an oppression of women. Hooking up, casual sex is a rite of passage. Virginity, purity is now dysfunctional. Anti-Christian rhetoric is protected by the First Amendment. Biblical teaching is now hate speech. As Isaiah said, evil is called good and good evil. It's coming true before our very eyes. Morality today has been turned topsy-turvy. Cultural norms and mores are being rewritten today. But just realize it's the devil holding the pen in his hand, not God. Reminds me of the music teacher who picked up a mallet and struck a tuning fork. He said to the class, here's the good news. That's an A. It's an A today. It was an A 5,000 years ago. It will be an A 10,000 years from now. The soprano upstairs sings off-key. The tenor across the hall flats on his high notes. The piano downstairs is out of tune. He hit the tuning fork again. But that is still an A, and that is really good news. And it is. Real truth never changes. Despite man's reinterpretations, God's Word is forever immutable. Last week a man asked me, Why we didn't make room for female pastors here at Calvary Chapel, I told him we believe the Bible. And the Bible reserves the position of pastor for male leadership. He said, but Pastor Sandy, that Bible, it needs to be updated from time to time. And that's where we disagreed. Hey, like I said this morning, nobody's getting smarter than God. He knows what he said. And he said it clearly. And I'm sticking to the script. Here's the woe that man needs to hear as well as we. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Oh, my. Be careful when you think you know it all. I like what one man said. It's amazing what all I learned after I knew it all. Proverbs 16, verse 25, echoes this verse and explains its wisdom. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. You see, God sees dangers that we don't see. He's smarter than we are. And we avoid great pain by obeying God. Here's another woe. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. Oh, the Bible might not prohibit the use of alcohol, but it certainly warns us of its dangers. Beware. Also, woe to the man who justified the wicked for a bribe, and take away justice from the righteous man. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble, and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord is aroused against His people. He has stretched out His hand against them and stricken them. And the hills tremble. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. Twice... In Israel's history, this prophecy was fulfilled. Jerusalem was toppled and the people were destroyed. Jerusalem was first toppled in the year 586 BC at the hands of the Babylonians. Later, it occurred in 70 AD at the end of a Roman sword. The carcasses of the Jews literally lay in Jerusalem's streets. Yet, according to Isaiah, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is outstretched still. And thus, the Bible predicts one more final invasion of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us, at the midpoint of this final seven years of great tribulation, the Antichrist will break his treaty with Israel and will invade Jerusalem. Jews will flee to the wilderness. This is mentioned at the end of Revelation 11. And Isaiah sees this last invasion here, 200 years before the first invasion. And he describes it, beginning in verse 26. God will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Did you know God whistles? be interesting to hear. Surely they will come with speed, swiftly. He'll whistle for the invaders to come. No one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep. Nor will the belt on their loins be loosened, nor the strap of their sandals be broken, whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves will seem like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. I mean, these invaders are ruthless, and they're relentless. Their roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like long, young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey. They will carry it away safely, and no one will deliver. And that day they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened by the clouds. God will rally the nations one day together against Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting today how the nations are all lining up against Jerusalem? Against Israel? Even our own country seems to be wavering in its support of Israel. It'll be an ominous sight in that day. Israel's only defense will be to turn to God. How ironic. The Almighty God who was shoved in the corner by the fireplace where He can knit, that the world is scoffed at and relegated is useless, that same God will be seen as Israel's only hope and salvation. And God will come to her defense in a mighty way. Which brings us to chapter 6. A passage that always reminds me of that brilliant theologian Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, he wrote a massive theology, multi-volumes that he entitled Summa Theologica. Theologica, theolo- theology, summa, the the summary, the, the totality of theology, quite a bombastic name for a book, wouldn't you say? He considered it the sum total of the knowledge of God, and yet on his deathbed, the Spirit of God came to Thomas Aquinas and revealed to him a vision of God's glory. Afterwards, Thomas wrote this, What I have seen makes all that I have previously taught and written seem as but chaff or straw to me. You know what this man say? This man who had delved into all these theological thoughts, when he saw God firsthand, When God revealed His glory to his heart, he said, all that I had previously learned was like straw in light of the glory of God that was revealed to me. And this was the kind of vision and calling that Isaiah experiences here in chapter 6. He sees God in His glory. The vision is recorded in chapter 6. This was the turning point in Isaiah's life. It shaped both the man and his ministry. Chapter 6 begins... In the year that King Uzziah died, this vision was so monumental in Isaiah's life, he never forgot its date, 740 B.C., the year that the king died. This Uzziah was a good and godly king. He had reigned over Judah for 52 years. Tradition suggests that Isaiah was his younger cousin. He had never known, Isaiah had never known life without Uncle Uzziah, the king, was Isaiah's mentor, a spiritual dad, you could say. Their relationship was similar to the bond between Moses and Joshua, or maybe Paul and Timothy. But now, Uzziah has died. Uzziah is gone. Isaiah had lived his whole life in the shadow of King Uzziah, this godly king. But now he finds himself on his own. And we've all experienced this at some point, haven't we? Well, if you haven't you will it occurs when you leave home in the support of your parents or when you're separated from a christian friend that you used to lean on and trust in or when a spiritual mentor moves on or even passes away i'll never forget speaking to a mentor of mine about the calling that god had placed on my life to start a church i wanted to know what he thought about the idea and he wisely refused to answer I'll never forget, he said, Sandy, there comes a point when we all have to listen to God for ourselves. And it's true. When there's no one left but God, for the first time you learn that God is enough. This is exactly what Isaiah learns in this chapter. It was time for Isaiah to dial God direct. It was time for him to come out from under the shadow of the king and forge a first-hand relationship with God. Once Uzziah was out of the picture, Isaiah says in verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. He saw God's sovereignty. He is sitting on a throne. He saw God's splendor. He is high and lifted up. He saw God's superiority, His train filled up the whole temple in the hebrew this word train is translated shul or is from the word shul which refers to the hem or the fringe or the border at the bottom of a robe understand in antiquity the hem of a garment represented the authority of the person who was wearing the robe and this is why the priests in the old testament they had special embroidery around the hem of their robes It marked their their priestly uh, calling. David, you remember, insulted Saul. By how? By clipping off the hem of his robe. It was an insult to his authority. In Ezekiel 16, verse 8, God makes a covenant with Israel by covering her with the hem of his robe. Boaz proposed to Ruth by taking her under his wing, or literally by bringing her under the corner of his robe bringing her under his authority. Recall the woman hemorrhaging from blood. She received healing by mustering the faith to reach out and grab the hem of Jesus' robe. In other words, she was touching his authority. And now when Isaiah sees the train, the hem of God's robe, he sees that it fills up the temple. He realizes that God's sovereignty and his splendor and his superiority are unsurpassed. This God is even greater than he thought. Verse 2 tells us, And above the throne stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Now there are two types of varieties of angels mentioned in the Bible. There are cherubim and there are seraphim. And both types are found around God's throne. The word seraphim means burning ones. And apparently, these seraphim have six wings. Six wings. Isaiah says that with two, he covered his face. Apparently, the glory of God was too much for his eyes to behold. With two, he covered his feet. The angel was too humble to stand before God's presence. And with two, he flew. He stayed suspended in the presence of God. It represented his constant worship and his tireless service. And Isaiah hears these angels. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The word holy means set apart. It speaks of God's uniqueness. Hey, when we say that God is love, we say one thing. But when we say that God is holy, we're saying that He loves like no one else loves. When we say that God is faithful, we're saying one thing. But when we say that He's holy, we're saying that He's faithful like no one else is faithful. A holy God is in a class all by Himself. No one else compares. God is a cut above. In fact, infinite cuts above. And notice the angels here, they cry out three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's no doubt a reference to the triune nature of the one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah beheld God's sovereignty, his splendor, his set-apartness, and now he feels God's strength. God just twitches a muscle, and now all of a sudden heaven shakes. The house of God fills with exhaust from His infinite glory. In verse 5, Isaiah speaks up. So I said, woe is me. You'd think Isaiah would say, wow. Instead, his reaction is, woe. You see, up against God's glory, all we can focus on is our own sin and slackness. And this is why he cries out, for I am undone. Isaiah's life is like an unmade bed in the morning. I mean, he's left so many loose ends in his life, so many unfulfilled vows, so many promises he's never kept. I'm undone. Isaiah concludes, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice Isaiah recognizes the depth of his problem. He's not just guilty of an occasional slip of the lip. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. He admits that it's his nature to sin. The problem is not just what Isaiah says, but it's what he is. And realize this is your problem. The issue is not just what comes out of your mouth, but it's what's in your heart. As Christians, we often compare ourselves to other people and we get haughty and smug and self-righteous. But Isaiah sees God. And this is what we need to see. We need to see God. For when we do, we'll realize that we are undone. That we don't stack up when we look at others. When you look at me, you might feel good about yourself. I'm sure you do. But when you look at God, it's a different matter. None of us stack up. It's ironic. The clearer I see God, the more unworthy of Him I know I am. Not until we see God as He really is, will we know ourselves as we really are. Reminds me of Job when he finally saw God. In Job 42, verse 5, he finally admits, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. What happens next to Isaiah is so encouraging. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Realize what happens here. This is an example of amazing grace. Hey, the posts of heaven are shaking. The angels are singing. The house of God is smoking. But when Isaiah confesses his sin, all of heaven suddenly comes to a standstill. God calls off the praise to himself in order to purge someone's sin. Do you realize God calls off the praise in order to cleanse one poor sinner? Isn't that encouraging to you? That God cares that much about us? That when he repents, he rushes to cleanse us and forgive us. God sends an angel with a coal from the altar to burn out Isaiah's impurities. You know, we all want to be touched by God, don't we? But usually we mean we want to be warmed and comforted and inspired and encouraged and strengthened. But notice God's first touch in Isaiah's life was to purify him. And this is the touch that we desperately need the purging touch, the purifying touch. This is the first way God touches our lives. This is what He wants to do in us. And God knows just the right place to put the coal. He knows the exact spot in your life that needs to be singed and purified. I had a doctor's appointment one time, and Kathy had noticed a mole up here right next to my neck, right here on my shoulder here. And she said, you really need to get that checked out and and have the doctor just take that off while you're there. And so um, I did. I I went to the doctor, had the procedure done, came back home. Kathy says, did you get the mole taken off? And I said, oh, yeah, honey. I said, "Uh, let me show you what it looks like. And I I said, look right over here where, where he burned it off. She said, wait a minute. She said, that's not the right mole the mole you were supposed to have taken off was over here on the other side i'd shown the guy the wrong mole had him take off the wrong the wrong mole i still got the one that she was uh, worried about it's right over here <laughs> but understand god doesn't make those mistakes he is an exact surgeon Isaiah's vision teaches us a truth that many people overlook about God's forgiveness. His pardon is both judicial, but it's also effectual. Oh yes, when we're forgiven, God tinkers with the heavenly ledgers. Our crimes are taken off the books. But God's pardon also impacts me personally, in my heart of hearts. It purges me. It actually removes my blemishes and my impurities. He cuts out that sin from my life. Once Isaiah is cleansed, he's in a place now where he can hear God speak. And he writes, also, I heard the voice of the Lord. You know, so often I'm asked, Pastor Sandy, how can I hear God speak? And the answer is simple. You can't miss God's voice when your heart is right toward Him. It's sin that creates static on the line between us and God. Once Isaiah is purged of his sin, now he hears God clearly. Christians think they need to strain and extend great effort to hear God. It's a, I think it's a lot easier than that. Just get your heart right. Deal with the specific sin. Let God singe and touch that part of you that needs to be singed. And the voice of God will come in loud and clear. And soon, as soon as the angel touches Isaiah's lips with the coal, he immediately hears God saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Notice here the Lord refers to himself in the plural, us. I think it's another reference to the Trinity. And then Isaiah tells him, Then I said, Here am I, send me. I like how Isaiah volunteers without the slightest hesitation. Here I am, Lord, send me. When God called Moses, he complained that he was slow of speech. When God called Jeremiah, he said that he was too young. Gideon was reluctant and needed affirmation. God had to repeat his call to young Samuel three times before he replied. But Isaiah overhears God's talking to himself. Whom shall I send? God doesn't even speak to Isaiah directly. Isaiah just finally gets to the place where he can hear God. And he overhears the Lord asking, whom shall I send? And Isaiah is quick to jump up and he shouts out, here am I, Lord, send me. I love that. This was kind of the verse that God used in my life to confirm his calling on me to be a pastor. Because this is how it happened in my life. When I finally got right with God and he finally, I finally surrendered to his purging and allowed him to do his work in my heart, suddenly Things that, that I had wondered about were suddenly clear. I could hear God speak all of a sudden. And I heard him say the same thing. Who will I send? Who will go for us? And I jumped up and said, here my Lord, please send me. And in verse 9, and God said to Isaiah, go. Go. Realize God's word to all of us is go. God desires for us to be his hands and his feet in a needy world. He wants us to be His mouthpiece and to trumpet His truth. But before we go, there's first a woe. A woe is me. None of us are fit to be used by God until we first have been broken of our pride and purged of our sin. This is why we all need a fresh new vision from God. Again in verse 9, and he said, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Now, it's interesting. You and I have been given good news to share. But Isaiah had a tougher message. His audience would never really understand nor appreciate his prophecies. God gives him a most unpleasant task. He says that his ministry will make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their eyes and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. Sometimes my ministry shuts people's eyes, but not deliberately. (laughs) It's usually your fault. You should have gotten more sleep the night before. But here Isaiah, his ministry is to deliberately shut people's eyes, lest they see. Shut their ears, lest they hear. Rather than open the eyes of his people, God is going to use Isaiah to harden his people's hearts. And at times, God will use us in similar ways. You know, we glory when God uses us in our message to open blind eyes. But at times, he uses our words to harden stubborn hearts. Did you know God can employ you to open eyes or to shut eyes? To open ears or to plug ears? To turn hearts or to sear hearts? To bend knees or to bow necks? I mean, the same word that brings salvation to one heart confirms judgment on another. Isaiah's ministry, sadly, was not intended to deliver Judah and Jerusalem, but to prepare them for judgment, to harden their hearts and their stubbornness. Afterwards, later, once the judgments have been rendered, Isaiah will come again and supply them with hope to start over. To prove how unpopular Isaiah's ministry ended up being in the eyes of his contemporaries, tradition says that the prophet was actually sawn in half by the wicked king Manasseh. Isaiah died a martyr's death. Hebrews 11 lists the Old Testament people who gained God's approval through their faith. And in verse 37 it reads, They were sawn in two. That's a reference to Isaiah. One other point here. Modern day critics have tried to do to the book of Isaiah what Manasseh actually did to the prophet himself. They've tried to dismember this book. Because the scope of Isaiah's prophecies are so sweeping and what he predicts is yet future, liberal critics who doubt the Bible's supernatural origin have tried to deny Isaiah's authorship. They theorize that the book was written by two or three men scattered across centuries, Supposedly, according to the liberal theologians, one Isaiah wrote the first half of the book, whereas another Isaiah wrote the second half of the book. They say it's impossible that one author could have foretold the future so accurately. But this theory, this nonsense, is easily refuted. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 41, is a summary of the ministry of Jesus. And in this passage, Jesus quotes twice from Isaiah, First, he quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 1. A verse that the critics claim was written by the second Isaiah. Yet in the very same passage, John quotes our text here. Chapter 6, verse 10. What critics claim was written by the first Isaiah. But then listen as John prefaces verse 39. He says, Isaiah said again. Obviously, John believed the same author. Jesus believed the same author quoted both, the same author quoted both of the sections that he quoted in the Gospel of John. You understand what I'm saying? That the first Isaiah and the second Isaiah were the same Isaiah. Isaiah said again, the same man quoted both, wrote both portions of the book. I finally got that John and the New Testament authors understood when Isaiah wrote all 66 chapters of Isaiah. Back to our text, verse 11. Isaiah isn't really looking forward to the ministry God's given him, and he wonders how long he'll have to preach to these stubborn people. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Isaiah will need to preach until judgment comes, until the houses are empty, until the cities are without their citizens. And yet the land will never be totally desolate. There will always be a remnant. He says, yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. He says, one-tenth of the Jews will survive, and they'll need God's truth to rebuild. In other words, Isaiah will never be without a job. And notice the last line in chapter 6, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Judah was a majestic tree, but it was a tree that was chopped down. And only the stump remained, but that stump started to grow again. A remnant of Jews came back from Babylon in 535 B.C., led by a man named Zerubbabel. And from that stump, a Messianic branch eventually grew. Jesus was born. Which brings us back to the branch of David where we started. And sometimes this happens in our lives, doesn't it? God cuts us down to stump size. Ever felt like a stump? I have. But even stumps can grow again. God is faithful and he's committed to our restoration.